Perhaps you were presented like Simba in the Lion King at church as well, or chapel somewhere. And there were great hopes, expectations for your life. I wonder what your parents were thinking at the time. I wonder what they hoped would happen with you and how your life would be shaped. They likely dreamed of what it might look like for you and wondered how it would pan out. So how's that going? Are you living your life in its fullest form? Do you feel as though your life reflects something of the description of the psalmist in Psalm 1 that says, like a tree planted by streams of water yielding fruit as if you're always in harvest season? Does your leaf never wither? Or can you actually feel quite withered at times? Less planted by streams of living water and more like a plant in the desert, just doing what it can to survive. Before studying theology, I picked a degree that would allow me to focus on rugby and socialising as much as possible. And so I essentially skived through my first couple of years at university. No offence met, meant, by the way, if you study one of these subjects, I'm sure you work hard at it and are diligent, unlike I was. Uh, but I p- picked geography and world religions. One of the things we studied was river basins. And I used to love this part of it. I loved the charting of river life. So cool, hey? Perhaps no basin is more impressive than the Okavanga in Botswana. This picture was taken by a crew member of NASA's 28th expedition to the International Space Centre. The river's source is in a high rainfall um, zone of southern Angola, but when it reaches its basin in Botswana, right in the middle of the Kalahari Desert, this dry and arid place, suddenly it, it spreads out and all this water comes across the desert and what you are seeing there, you can't actually see much water, you are seeing greenery. Life flows into the Kalahari Desert and suddenly it completely changes the environment. I don't know about you, but even when life is going well, I still have this strange thirst for more. I still feel like there is a fuller version of existence that I've not quite tapped into. You feel that? For life to flourish, we need a source. Water needs to flow. Steve is reading our text this morning, and as we've been doing throughout the series, I'm going to encourage us to stand, if we can, for the reading of God's Word. It's going to be John 7, 37 through 44. If you're unfamiliar and you have a Bible with you, it's about three quarters of the way through your Bible, and uh, at the end of those uh, Gospels, those four Gospels. So, there is so much that we can say about this short passage. But the thing we're going to focus on today is actually the context in which Jesus said these things. Often we we read these passages and we immediately think, oh, I know what this means. 
But actually, without the fullness of the context and what's really going on in the background here, it's actually very difficult to understand. So we're going to just lay that out for us. And um, yeah, let's see if God brings some life into the room and into our hearts. Josephus was a, a Jewish historian and uh, he said of the Feast of Tabernacles, this, ta- this feast that they were at at the time, that this was the most popular of festivals. Hundreds of thousands of people turned up here during the autumn in Jerusalem from all over Israel and b- beyond. Jews traveling from the nations around. They celebrated a harvest not of grain, but of grapes, olives, and other fruits. But more than that, it was a thanksgiving for God's presence being with them in the wilderness days. Passover wasn't the only Exodus-themed festival in the Jewish calendar. This one remembered God guiding those tent-dwelling nomads in the middle of the desert with pillars of fire and uh, providing water in the wilderness and those pillars of cloud in the day. Moses was leading his people from Egyptian slavery to the promised land. And here, what we see is these thousands of people coming and celebrating that in all kinds of amazing ways. One of the things they would do is they would come into the city, people from all around, and they would camp using branches and leaves, and then they would decorate these things and literally built their own little tabernacles, their own little uh, tents. And then people who lived in Jerusalem, they would use their flat roofs to build these things too. And they would do that a little bit in advance before the festival began. And so it's a little bit like maybe putting up a Christmas tree. And they celebrated them and made them really colourful. You can kind of imagine the scene as the city starts to fill and the decorations go up. There's some excitement. There's some joy in the air. And interestingly, John groups these two festivals together in the text, Passover and the Feast of Tabernacles, even though they're six months apart. Why does he do that? Well, it's with John, if you've, been, if you've joined us for John, uh, this series in John, my goodness, he is so deliberate about what he is saying. This is not an accident. He's making a point. We saw at the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus gave bread and fish like God gave the people manna and quail in the wilderness. Now crowds come from all over Israel and Jews from all around the nations. And John shows us that Jesus can save us from slavery too. Not slavery to a particular people, but to the most demanding and hopeless slave owner that there is. And that is our own sin. He's a lamb slain for our sin so that we don't receive the judgment we deserve, but passes over us. What mercy from God. John shows us here that the work of Jesus, though, doesn't end with mercy. It's not just about getting off from what we do deserve. It's about receiving what we don't deserve. It continues from mercy into grace, grace upon grace. God is lavish with his grace, and John is desperate for us to see that it's not just mercy, it's grace. It's an overflowing of goodness that comes from the life of God. At the end of the week, on the seventh day, what is usually the final day, there are two really big moments. The first 
is what was called the water pouring ceremony. Now that might not sound too thrilling to you just yet, but you just wait. The other was in, in the evening when the temple courts were lit up with this huge display of light. Now don't think flickering candles in a cathedral. Think huge torches of fire that were to represent the pillars of fire that guided them through the wilderness on those exilic nights. The water pouring ceremony, which is what Jesus is focusing on here, began at the healing pools of Siloam. That's the same place where Jesus heals the, the man born blind. I'll let you draw your own conclusions from that as to what the significance might be. Blind, but now I see. That pool was formed by a spring that is sourced from the river Gihon. The river Gihon was one of the four rivers described in Genesis, in Genesis 1 and 2, through traveling through Eden. Hmm. Hold on to that piece of information. Okay. Because the Jews listening to this in places like Ephesus, where we know John was read aloud, would have known where that spring was coming from and that it was one of the rivers that flowed through Eden. So, why did they begin there? Because it was a reminder that God had miraculously provided water in the wilderness. So you can see there, that's the pool of Siloam. And that is the spring that comes from, this, from the Gihon. And then what you're going to see up the top there is the temple. It's huge, isn't it? Herod's temple was massive. The second temple was absolutely huge. And it imposed itself over the whole city. That is actually quite a long distance. And it's uphill. And so they gather there, hundreds of thousands of people trying to get as close as they can to it all, enjoying the festivities. And what we see is that the water provided there is to remind them of the water that was provided in the wilderness. You might remember the story in Exodus. The people have escaped from slavery. They've passed through the Red Sea. And now suddenly they're thirsty. Where's water going to come from? They're hungry. Where's the food going to come from? We were better off in Egypt. They're moaning to Moses. And what does God do? He provides them water out of a rock. This water gushes from the rock. An abundance of water, more water than they need. And they drank. They quenched their thirst. But as Jewish historian at Joachim Jeremiah points out, I think that's how you pronounce it. I've only ever read it. There was also this kind of great anticipation among the people of a Messiah at the, Feast of the, at the Feast of Tabernacles. A messianic age in which a stream from the sacred rock would flow over the whole earth. Isn't that interesting? At Siloam, the crowds gathered for a procession. They were going to go in this long march, this long procession up the hill to the top of the city, to the temple. Then the high priest, and only the high priest, would be able to carry the jar, which is now filled to the brim. And the huge crowds follow on 
as this water, this water sourced from a river that once flowed through Eden, through the streets, up the hill, towards the temple. Now, as this huge structure, this massive temple got near, they eventually reached what's called the water gate. And it is through this water gate that the jar would pass. And as they passed through it, there was a a trumpet-like instrument, a sopar that was sounded. And there would be three loud blasts on this trumpet. And this trumpet was an instrument of joy, only to be used in moments of joy. And the crowd erupts in celebration because the presence of the Lord, which is represented in the water, passes through the gate towards the temple. The life-giving presence of the Lord was about to enter this special place of worship, this Eden-like temple which had decorations of greenery and trees all over it supposed to help us see that Eden was the first temple, that all of life was really about worship. And the people would start singing. In fact, it was a choir first. They would sing through the Hallel, Psalms 113 to 118. And when they got to Psalm 118, the people would know, here's our time, guys. They'd be looking around, are you ready? Are you ready? We're going to sing this thing out together. Hundreds of thousands of people spilling out from the temple and that portion of Jerusalem singing together. And as they did, they would hold up a branch to remember the life that God had given, as well as something from the harvest, maybe a lemon, some kind of fruit that signified the abundance that God had given them. And they would hold it up and sing together. You've been to, maybe you've been to a European night at Celtic Park or Ibrox, and you think that noise, it's never going to be rivaled. Imagine this, hundreds of thousands singing passionately, yearning for the messianic age to come, for the Spirit of God to come in a way that it hadn't come yet. And they would sing these words, Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His love endures forever. Let Israel say, His love endures forever. Shouts of joy and victory resound in the tents of the righteous. The Lord's right hand has done mighty things. The Lord's right hand is lifted high. The Lord's right hand has done mighty things. All the while, the priests continued to march around the Holy of Holies. Eventually, the high priest, and only the high priest, took the water jar and the wine offering, which was offered daily as a daily offering of joy, Grapes and wine, when you see them in Scripture, usually some form of representation of joy. And they poured them out on the altar. Both the wine and the water represented what had come, but also what was to come. Water was about life, and wine was about joy. For all his provision, the people didn't just thank God for what he had done, but they hoped for what he might do. Do you hope 
for more life? Do you yearn for it? Do you think you've not quite experienced it in all its fullness? That's how they felt. Desiring for more. Is there more to life than this? When Jesus finally stands to speak, having been anonymous in the crowds all week, he does so on a day that could not be more significant. Every seven years, seven representing fullness and perfection, a special eighth day was added to the Feast of Tabernacles, a day when God's word, the Torah, was read aloud and taught like in Nehemiah 8 and 9, when Nehemiah and Ezra and all those Babylonian exiles returned to Jerusalem and the word of God was preached. Another generation of exiles, Jesus here, who John says is the word become flesh, Torah embodied, stands up on the most significant day of the festival that only happens every seven years, and he assumes the role of Israel's teacher. He says, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. Now, with everything we've just said, with everything we've just unearthed about the context of Jesus' statement, here is how radical his invitation is. This is fact. This is how his invitation was brought. Now, we need to decide, do we believe it or not? Here's what he's saying. Come, those of you who are needy, who are weary in body and soul to the healing pools. I'm inviting you to be filled like this ceremonial container to the brim of with the living waters of Gihon, of the life-giving spirit of the first temple in Eden. I am your great high priest and I will make a way for you to be cleansed, to be made holy so that you can receive those holy waters, so that you can receive Eden-like life. I am your great priest. Come and enter through the gate, this gate of joy, and into the presence of God, into the Holy of Holies with me. Come to me and I will give you the everlasting satisfaction sourced in Eden in the Gihon, Gihon Spring. It's time for you to flourish and to be filled with rivers of living water. It's what Jesus earlier described in chapter 4 to the Samaritan woman. He said, the spring of water welling up to eternal life. Verse 39, John gives us a bit of explanation, which is helpful, isn't it? He expands. Jesus was announcing that he hadn't only come from God in heaven, he was returning to him. 
and he was going to pour out his spirit on his church. He was anticipating a new and a better kingdom, a new era, a messianic era, one we are made to live in. So if we want that, what do we need to do? What's the criteria? I mean, do I have to like sit and meditate or something? Like, do I need to pay you? Like, how do I do this? Do I need to know the Bible better? Do I, do I need to like clean up my life? No. No, that's, that's, that's not what Jesus is saying at all. You don't need to put the hours in. Jesus is clear. I don't want any of that. It's not about you and what you can earn, what you can do. You might look special in this world because you've worked hard, you've earned something spectacular. That's great. Praise God. But it is a puddle compared to the rivers of living water that flow from heaven through Jesus Christ. All you need to do is believe. Believe in what? John helps us. First, his glorification had to take place. A word used in John's gospel for two significant moments in Jesus' life. One would be that after his resurrection from the dead, the disciples would, would see Jesus ascending into heaven. He would return to glory. It would be his glorification. But that is not the only way in which John uses that word, and he consistently uses it in both ways. The other is to be raised up on a cross, to be the Passover lamb. How is he going to cleanse you and make you a pure vessel to be filled with this life-giving spirit? To be glorified by being raised up on a cross, dying in your place, giving you mercy by becoming your righteousness, sorry, becoming your sin so that you could receive righteousness, receiving the punishment that you deserve, cleansing you, making you new and ready to receive the life-giving presence of the Holy Spirit. You can enter in because Jesus is your righteousness, because he breathed his last and the curtain was torn into. Confess that no amount of self-discipline and self-cultivation will ever produce more success than an evaporating puddle or withering patch of weeds. Believe in Christ's glorification at the cross. But it is also to believe in the glorification of Jesus in heaven. To trust that he ascended on high, took his rightful throne at the right hand of God, and then, as the church was born from that place of glorification, he pours out his Spirit on us. That happened at another festival called Pentecost. The church was born that day. They had waited for the right time, waiting on the Spirit of God to be poured out and bring life. 
Here's the truth. According to Jesus, you're cut off from the wellsprings of true life. The sun is beating down and there is no water coming in. You're in trouble and you need the rock that gushes out the wellsprings of life. You need the rock of Christ. A source you can trust, one that keeps flowing no matter how much the earth heats and cracks around you. And only by believing in the glorification of Jesus raised up on the cross and ascended to his throne in heaven can you know that you will never run dry. In the message, Eugene Peterson paraphrases Psalm 143, 6 like this. I stretched out my hands to you as thirsty for you as a desert thirsty for rain. That is what it is to believe. That's what Jesus is inviting us to do. It is to trust him for true life. Like the Okavango Basin in the Kalahari Desert, be filled to flourishing with the life-giving presence of the Holy Spirit. Now, to avoid confusion, there is one important thing to say here. Jesus has poured out the Spirit of God, but there is more to come. So if you're a Christian here, you're going, I think I've received the Spirit, I think I've experienced something of what it is to, to be filled with the Holy Spirit, but I still get moments where I feel like I'm pretty dry. I could do with more life. Well, first thing to do is, is pray for more of the Spirit. But the second thing is to hope in what is to come. It's not over. This isn't it. This is just a glimpse. There is so much more to come. None of us have experienced the fullness of the Spirit-filled life just yet. God has poured out his spirit and there are all kinds of wonderful, wonderful implications for the believer. We are filled with more life and we keep living the Christian, as we keep living the Christian life, we experience more of the fruits of the spirit. We experience more of his love. We experience more of what it is to be in him and to know him and enjoy him for him to be the one who carries us through life. But, but, it's not the end. John is actually showing a greater glimpse of what is to come when he has a vision on the island of Patmos while he's praying. It's recorded in Revelation. And Revelation 22 says this, verse 1, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life. Sound familiar language? As clear as crystal. Flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. He's the gate. Down the middle of the great street of the city, on each side of the river stood the tree of life, 